If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. So Peter, when did you first become interested in aviation? When I was seven, my father went out to work in Kenya. I know it's called Kenya now, but it was called Kenya then, so please forgive me. Um, We flew out on a BOAC Argonaut, DC-4. I can remember absolutely nothing about when I was seven, except this flight from London to Nairobi took 24 hours. We flew from London to Rome, Rome to Benghazi, Benghazi to Khartoum, Khartoum to Entebbe, and Entebbe to Embakazi by Nairobi. And I think that sort of bit me, because when I could, I'd get my parents to take me out to the airport just to look at aeroplanes. They obviously realised I was keen, and so for one of my birthdays, probably when I was 11 or 12, something like that, They bought me a £5 voucher for what we would now call a trial lesson or an introductory flight to go and fly in a Cessna. So I went and flew in a Cessna 150. Instructor said, do you want to fly it or do you want to look out the window? I said, I'd like to fly it. I did. Enjoyed it. So I got home. I broke open my piggy bank, dug out my worldly savings, bought another £5 voucher and went and did it myself. Before we left Kenya, I applied to BOAC for a place at their college at Hamble, as it then was, and I applied to the Air Force for a place at Cranham. BOC were pretty uninterested, and they said, give us a call when you've done your A-levels. Mm-hmm. The RAF said, come along to Biggin Hill, to the Officers and Air Crew Selection Centre, uh, sent me a railway warrant, which involved a week off school, Get in. <laughs> and at the age of 16, you don't turn things oh, like that down. So I, off I went to Biggin Hill, passed, got, uh, private pilot's license, uh, or it was part of the scholarship, it was a private pilot's license, which I did on my same month as my 17th birthday. And in those days, 17 was the minimum age you could get a PPL. While I was at school, uh, <coughs> the school had a combined cadet force. The combined cadet force had a Navy section and an Army section, but not an Air Force section. The Army section went walking up and down hills and smothering, uh, sloping around in muddy fields. The Navy section went floating around the local lake in boats, so I joined the Navy section. As a Navy cadet, on one school holiday, I got to spend a week on HMS Eagle, which was then operating Gannets, Sea Vixens and Buccaneers. The Buccaneer was sort of the new toy. Mm-hmm. And it was pointy and it was shiny and it went fast and it went low and mm-hmm. I was quite taken with a buccaneer. Mm-hmm. After school I went to Cranwell. The usual stuff, chipmunks, jet provost. Got my wings at Cranwell. Was streamed for fast jets, so I went to Valley. Flew the Nat. Wonderful little aeroplane. Rather like the A4, you don't get into it, you put it on. I heard the roll rate's incredible in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the end of Valley, we were streamed for whatever was coming next. I wanted to fly the Buccaneer. The RAF by that stage had got them. That's what I'd seen on Eagle. That's what I wanted to fly. I was unaware of the single-seat, two-seat streaming that went on. 
So <clears throat> I was given a Harrier posting. It was only when I got to Chivna. After Valley, I had a hold prior to the pre-Harrier course at Chivna, and I held at Chivna. And Chivna was the home of all the hairy old hunter pilots. <laughs> and I pitched up as a spotty-faced youth at Chivna with a Harrier posting in my pocket. And it was only when I got there and I saw all these grumpy looking people looking at me, I thought, ooh, I might have got something good here. Yeah. And I'm surprised that they didn't kill me to get it from me. So Peter, what was your first frontline aircraft you got posted to? First frontline aeroplane was the Harrier. Um, after Chivna, they put us onto helicopters for a week. And we flew the whirlwind from RAF Turnhill which is now a satellite to Shawbury, because they were concerned that we would be worried about hovering. So we got six hours in the whirlwind during the week. It was brilliant. Uh, we didn't have to do, we had a, maybe one or two minutes ground school. We didn't have to do any of the checks or the air, air, airmanship type things. We simply just flew the helicopter. So on the first flight, the instructor would start the helicopter, take us out into the middle of a very large green field, then let us fly it so that we didn't bump into anything in it. Um, in that six hours, we pretty much covered the full helicopter course. Six hours? Yep, because we didn't have to worry about fuel management, air traffic, uh, airmanship, emergencies, checks, or any of that stuff. We simply flew the helicopter. So by the end of the six hours, we were doing some, what I would consider to be fairly difficult helicopter stuff, like flying into clearings in woods, turns around the tail rotor, uh, landing on sloping ground. Uh, and that came of huge benefit to me later on, which we'll cover in due course. After the whirlwind, we went to the Harrier. You've had plenty of stories about how to fly the Harrier. Um, it was a great aeroplane, great, uh, great aeroplane to fly, fun to fly, and it did all sorts of things that other aeroplanes didn't do, which was good. After the Harrier course, I was posted to 20 Squadron at Wildenrath in Germany. That was uh, something new, something different. It was fairly early on. I was the third first tourist posted onto the Harrier, okay. and everything that we were doing in Germany was different. We lived in muddy fields, lived in tents, sorry we flew off muddy fields, we lived in tents um, and we were learning as we went along. It was great, great fun, great experience. Uh, during my time on 20 Squadron I saw four ejections out of Harriers. After 20 Squadron I did the weapons instructors course at Wittering and then went to one squadron at Wittering as a QY. One Squadron was different, it was assigned to the flanks of NATO rather than the central region. Uh, so we went up to Norway every March to fly off snow and ice covered runways, which was different. Uh, Tromso in the, in the Arctic Circle. Uh, the irony of that was that after two weeks of flying off snow and ice covered runways in Tromso, we'd get back to Wittering, there'd be a small flurry of snow on the runway with half an inch, and they'd say, oh, you can't fly, the runway's covered in snow. We said, well, excuse me, we've just spent two weeks doing this, but no, sorry, them's the rules, you don't fly. Uh, during my time on One Squadron, we were working up to go and fly off Ark Royal. That's the conventional Ark Royal, not the subsequent Harrier Carrier Ark Royal. 
so in that workup, they sort of painted a deck type shape on a large lump of concrete at Wittering for us to practice on. And we had the great joy of going down to be dunked, where they stick you in a simulated helicopter uh, fuselage and dunk you in the swimming pool. And having dunked you in the swimming pool, they then rotate the fuselage so up is no longer up and you have to get out. And the clue is to hold your breath, wait, which, watch which way the bubbles go, because the bubbles go up. And then when you can see a bit, unstrap yourself and follow the bubbles up to the surface. And we got through that prior to going on to Ark Royal, which we never achieved because the squadron was then sent to Belize in Central America. Guatemala was banging the drums and we were sent out to Belize to counter that. Six guys flew the aeroplanes from the UK across to Bermuda. The Americans were sort of favouring Guatemala rather than Belize, so we couldn't use American airspace. And as soon as Cuba found out that we weren't being allowed to use American airspace, they said, well, come fly over Cuba, presumably to annoy the Americans. <laughs> um, I was one of the unlucky six who drew the short straw where we had to pre-position in Bermuda for, I think it was four nights waiting for the aeroplanes to fly over from the UK. Everybody has their hardships. Tough times. Um, we picked the aeroplanes up from the six that brought them into Bermuda and flew them from Bermuda into Belize. Uh, we had the long-range ferry tanks on and nobody knew at that stage what was going to be happening when we got there. So the brief was that if necessary we'd jettison the ferry tanks, we'd got loaded guns and we'd go and do whatever was necessary. As it happens, nothing was necessary, so we were told just to fly up and down the coast and then fly inland to Belmapan, which is the capital city of Belize, to make lots of noise so that everybody knew we were there. Uh, we were in Belize for six months. This aeroplane behind us was in Belize with us, and when I looked in my logbook, I flew this one on its final sortie in Belize, where we did fly past the Belize city, Belmapan, and the airport. Uh, while I was in Belize, I witnessed my fifth ejection from a Harrier. Uh, and by this time, I was sort of getting used to seeing puffs of black smoke coming out of the engine and thinking, oh dear, this is going to end in tears. So I actually took a photograph of the full ejection sequence and the aeroplane crashing in the sea and the pilot sitting in his dinghy wow. afterwards. At the end of one squadron, I was pretty much destined in my mind to go to the OCU as an instructor, which I didn't particularly want to do. But the Air Force said, how about going to the Jaguar, which was an up and coming new, new aeroplane coming into service. I said, if I've got to go to an OCU to instruct, I'd rather do it on the Harrier because I know the Harrier. And they said, no, it'll be a squadron. I said, OK, I'm in for that. So I went up to Lossiemouth, did a quick conversion onto the Jaguar, a quick QY conversion onto the Jaguar. But while I was doing those things, um, there were a few Jaguar crashes which resulted in the loss of a couple of instructors. Mm -hmm. So they were now short of instructors. So I was held at Lossiemouth to instruct on the OCU for a short while. One of the squadron commanders at Lossie was an ex-Harrier man and he smiled at me and said, right, we've got you now, you'll be staying. And I said, no, 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 they've promised me a, a Germany squadron. And they said, no, we've got you, you'll be here. But bless the Air Force, they stuck by what they'd said. And I did three months instructing at Lossie and then went out to Bruggen to a Jaguar squadron there. 
The Jaguar was a lovely aeroplane to fly. It was woefully underpowered, and they said that the Jaguar only got airborne because the Earth was round. Um, but once it was up and running, it actually would go quite quickly. It had a better nav attack system than the Harrier had. Well, it was a different generation. You know, it was one generation beyond. Um, it wouldn't fight. It ran out of energy very quickly. But it was a great aeroplane to fly. Uh, in my, I, I flew the Jaguar only for a year. That included the conversion. But in that year, I got 360 hours, which is a good number of hours. And I had my best ever month of a little over 52 hours in a month. And that was all single seat, all low level, all proper flying. During my time on the Jaguar, I witnessed my sixth ejection. Well, I was having difficulty finding people ready to fly in formation with me by this stage, <laughs> I think. Uh, he had a catastrophic engine failure. And when I say catastrophic, it resulted in the engine seizing rather than windmilling. Mm. And he was getting distracted by a lot of warning signs and things. And he went, this was from La, which was a Canadian Air Force base in South Germany. And when he came back into land, um, the aeroplane got behind the drag curve. And even though he had full burner going on one engine, it wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. Hence the comment, it's woefully underpowered. Yep. And he ejected probably 50 to 100 feet, uh, just short of, uh, of the runway. Um, that was my time on the Jaguar, very short. And then again, masterful posting by the Air Force. I got posted on an exchange tour to the US Navy back in a Harrier related job. Mm -hmm. After the US Navy exchange, which we'll come to in due course, I came back and went to a Central Tactics and Trials Organization, which was a ground tour based at High Wycombe. But my timing was perfect because they were just letting the CTTO desk officers stay current in their aircraft type. I was the Harrier desk officer there, so I got to keep current in the Harrier, which I did with one squadron at Wittering. I had deployed with the squadron to Tromso again in the March and came back towards the end of March and as far as I was concerned that was it for a few months because the squadron was working up to go on a maple flag in Canada. And then at the beginning of April it all changed because Argentina invaded the Falklands. I was attached back to one squadron and I led the third wave of GRs from the UK down to Ascension. The fuel plan was quite tight because again, the Spanish wouldn't let us fly through their airspace. We had to go all the way around overseas. We had to pre-position at St. Morgan in Cornwall because as I say, the fuel plan was quite tight. We had to get into the cockpits in plenty of time before takeoff because the Victor tankers were coming from Marham and they didn't have the fuel to mess around. So we had to rendezvous with them in pretty much in a straight line. There was gonna be no orbiting. Um, we took off on time. We rendezvoused with these five Victor tankers. They refueled each other and then a couple peeled off and went back to Marham. They kept refueling themselves and us as we headed on south. Um, a beam banjul in the Gambia, the final tanker topped us up and went into Banjul, I believe, which left us with about three hours of fuel to travel 1,500 miles to Ascension. 
Now Ascension is a small volcanic island. The only nav aid on it was a Takan beacon, which has a range of about 200 miles. By this stage, our inertial nav systems, which were all right for a 30-40 minute sortie, which was the normal type use of it, had been running for six hours. The headings were getting a wee bit scraggy. Um, and we also had something called the ITCZ to get through, the Intertropical Convergence Zone, which is where the north and south trade winds meet, and they have a fight, and they put up um, thunderstorms, which go up to 78,000 feet. Well, we weren't going to go over them, we wouldn't go through them, so we had to go around them. And if you've got 1,500 miles to go, it doesn't take much navigational error, given that you're over the sea, to miss an island by 200 miles, yeah. which concentrated my mind. <laughs> but I, we had a search and rescue Nimrod covering a large part of the route, so I negotiated with the Nimrod that it would come up to us and we'd come down to it, and the Nimrod would take us as far as it was going, which was about 500 miles from Ascension, and from there on I felt more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, Ascension, as I say, was a volcanic rock, uh, but because of all the moist tropical air, there's a little white cap on the top of it of cloud. So actually you could see Ascension from a long way away because it was the only bit of cloud in the whole, uh, whole of the Atlantic yeah. at that stage. So we landed uh, at Ascension. After the one day and the two nights, we flew the aeroplanes out of Wide Awake Airfield and landed them on Atlantic Conveyor, which was anchored just off the coast. Uh, Atlantic conveyor, uh, converted container ship with a vertical landing pad at the front, containers down the side to protect the aeroplanes a bit from seawater. We landed, uh, they then put the aeroplanes into bags and stashed them sort of sardine-like on the deck of Atlantic conveyor. And there was a lot there, I think, if my memory is right, we had the six RAF GR3s, I think there were about eight Sea Harriers, the four Chinook helicopters and probably another half dozen or so various helicopters. So it was a busy ship. Yeah. Um, they didn't have accommodation for everybody, so we sailed south on Norland, which is a North Sea car ferry. And we, every few days, we'd helo across to Atlantic Conveyor to have briefings and talk about what was going to happen. Eventually, we got down to where the fleet was, and we did a vertical takeoff from Atlantic Conveyor to land on Hermes. And that's where I spent <coughs> my time for the Falklands. I'll give you two anecdotal stories rather than bore you forever. <laughs> Firstly was Goose Green. Goose Green was the second most defended part of the island. Port Stanley was the first. Goose Green. It, only, it didn't have any radar-laid missiles, but it had radar-laid AAA and man-portable uh, missiles, blowpipe, uh, SAM-7 type things. We didn't like Goose Green. We'd lost two aeroplanes there. Um, the Sea Harrier, uh, Harrier was lost and the pilot unfortunately killed. We lost a GR-3 there, the pilot ejected. But it was... The AAA was very, very distracting. We did one attack against the airfield, and although the, it was with four aeroplanes, we all got through without getting hit. But 
it was very hard not to look at all this AAA that was coming up in your general direction. Yeah. Uh, and so it was really distracting. Anyway, um, two para were doing their attack against Goose Green. The weather at sea was diabolical. Two of us had been in cockpit readiness to go and do close air support for two para. The lights were, light was drawing down, so it was generally pretty miserable out at sea, and we had just been stood down. Mm -hmm. um, and we got out of the cockpits and we went to the ready room space, whatever you call it, that <coughs> we were using as a uh, briefing room, ops room, everything room. Um, and we had just got into the room when an immediate task came through to support two para, who by that stage were tired, knackered might be a better word. <laughs> they were certainly running out of ammunition um, and they'd almost come to a bit of a standstill, but they were close in to the settlement by this stage. Uh, but being out of the cockpit, it gave me 30 seconds on the floor of this briefing room to draw a quick line on the map so that we could run in to attack the AAA guns that were on the little isthmus to the east of the settlement. Uh, that was good because it gave me an attack direction that I could pretty much guarantee wouldn't cause any collateral damage to the settlement. Um, and we went in with three aeroplanes. Uh, I was the leader, dropped my cluster bombs, as I had dropped them and was flying on, I saw a gun just down on my right-hand side. So I called to the two aeroplanes behind me to fire just to the right of my fall of shot. The second aeroplane had cluster bombs, the third aeroplane was firing rockets, and they put their weapons down just to the right of where mine had gone. And as I understand it, it did a pretty good job of um, taking out the AAA that was there. It also demoralized the Argentinians and the brief was that the two, two in charge of two para because H Jones by then had been killed was Chris Keeble and he was going to seek the surrender of the Argentinian force and our brief was that the next morning two of us were kept on cockpit readiness on the deck to go bizarrely to do a firepower demo at the same place okay. and apparently what was going to happen was that if they didn't surrender he was going to say well if you look out your window in 10 minutes this is the next thing that's going to happen well they did surrender so we didn't have to go and do it that was an important battle for a number of reasons and close air support did its bit i mean at the end of the day it was boots on the ground that won it but we did our little bit to help them um, because it gave the British forces, and it was the first battle, proper battle, uh, of after the amphibious landing, gave the British forces the expectation that we could win, and the Argentinians probably the expectation that they were going to lose. Plus, it set up some great inter-unit rivalry, because if two para can do that, then three para are sure as hell we're going to do better. Yeah. And whatever the paras can do, the Royal Marine Commando can do even better. The other... Uh, war story, for want of a better expression, was I was airborne on the 14th of June with an aeroplane with two laser-guided bombs. The laser-guided bomb kits had been airdropped to us in the sea 
just off the Falkland. So there's an awful lot of effort goes into to doing that sort of thing. Um, we'd only just got to a point where we could get laser energy onto targets and two sorties prior had dropped laser-guided bombs successfully. I was the third laser-guided bomb sortie. The airspace over the islands at 25,000 feet we considered to be safe. Um, apart from day one and perhaps one other occasion, the Argentinians hadn't put missile-armed fighters over the islands, so as far as we were concerned that airspace was, was clear and they didn't have anything on the ground that could get up there to touch us. So we took the forward air controllers brief at 25,000 feet and uh, were just about to let down to low level to loft the bombs against Sapper Hill, which was the last high ground before uh, Port Stanley, when the forward air controller told us to hold off. How long can you hold for? I worked out with fuel, like I said, well, 20 minutes, maybe a wee bit longer. Um, and about five minutes later, he came and he said, right, go home. And the white flags are up. They're streaming back into Stanley. And we don't want to throw bombs into the middle of this in case they turn around and come back. So headed back to the ship. And I thought, what do I do now? And I worked out that if I burnt fuel off to not a lot, I could actually do a vertical landing with these bombs okay, on. Right. And given that the kits, as I say, had been airdropped down to us, and I didn't know if they were going to be needed again later that day or maybe the next day if, if things changed on the islands, I decided to land back on Hermes with the bombs on. So I burnt off fuel. I didn't have a lot of fuel left. Came in, landed on the ship. Before I got out of the cockpit, there was a very excited Navy Lieutenant Commander standing, waiting for me to get out of the cockpit and said, the captain wants to see you. Uh -oh. <laughs> now, the captain of Hermes was not a huge fan of the Royal Air Force. I could go a lot further than that, but I won't. <laughs> we'll keep it there. <laughs> so I traipse up to the bridge, and he bollocks me for landing on his boat with bombs on. As far as he was concerned, I think um, if you took off with bombs on and landed with bombs off, that was a successful sortie. It didn't matter where they'd gone, as long as they were on when you took kind off of and off no when you came really, back. <laughs> uh, so I explained to him why I'd done what I did, at which stage he stopped bollocking me. He said, wait there, disappeared and came back two minutes later with Admiral Woodward, who was the Joint Task Force Commander. And he said, right, tell him what you've just told me. So I repeated my story to Admiral Woodward who went, oh, good, and turned around and walked off. So I was the carrier pigeon that gave the task force commander the news that he wanted, which was basically it was all over. And the captain stopped bollocking me, so I only got half a bollocking. So that was, that was progress. The Navy hate launching and recovering aeroplanes. Really? Because they've got to steam into wind in a straight line. And the Navy know that all of the oceans of the world still have U-boat packs lurking there, waiting to sink them. So they hate being predictable and steaming in a straight line. You've got to steam in a straight line for takeoff because you need wind over deck because that makes the takeoff a whole lot easier. But some brain surgeon worked out that if you get a 20 knot wind, which in the South Atlantic was not uncommon, if the ship steams downwind at 10 knots, you've got 10 knots of wind over the back end. So you Harrier chaps, you want to land into wind, you simply land facing backwards. Simples. 
Well, technically it was, but the person who devised this cunning scheme had actually obviously never flown a Harrier. Because <laughs> when you decelerate to the hover, and it's something you're well accustomed to doing, you've done it a million times, it's something you're used to doing, uh, you have this horrendous visual illusion. You're decelerating through, let's say, 100 knots, and you've got this ship steaming towards you with a great big bow wave. Even at 10 knots, it's putting out a great big bow wave, particularly in the South Atlantic with big waves. And as you sort of decelerate through 80, 70, 60 knots, you think you're going backwards at about 50 knots. Ooh. Well, you've seen Harriers go backwards at flying displays, but not at 50 knots. Uh, it's not something you do. So you're fighting with your brain, because your eyes are telling you one thing, the instruments are telling you something completely different, mm -hmm. and you're having to fight to keep control of the two things. Oh and it is really challenging until you cut out of your peripheral vision the wake of the ship. As soon as you cut out the wake of the ship, everything snaps together, and it's all perfectly normal, and you can whistle across and land. And if you watch somebody doing a rearward facing landing, you can see it's like they're on a boiled egg. They're sort of all over the place. Yeah. And you can tell the instant they cut out the wake of the ship because all of a sudden everything goes steady and normal. So that was one way that the Navy could get their own back on us. The other thing which was slightly stressful was landing on a ship is a piece of cake. Um, in Germany at, uh, at the beginning we used to land on 50-foot square metal pads. Yeah. That was tricky because you couldn't see the pad until you were all just about on it and you had to cross the edge of it at a decent height so you didn't blow the pad up. We increased the size of the pad to 75-foot square pads and those were a whole lot easier. Well, I mean, a, an aircraft carrier is, what, 20 l vertical landing pads all glued together. <laughs> yeah. And the e whereas the edges of the pads in the field were loose and pinned into soil, the edge of the ship is welded to the hull, so you're not going to blow that over. Of course. Um, so landing on the ship was dead easy, but as soon as you're on the boat, they want you off the landing area, either so another aeroplane can land there, um, or so they can be used for takeoffs. I'll digress a little bit. Uh, the one of the advantages of the Harrier is if the ship is pitching, and it was doing a lot of that in the South Atlantic, the front's going up and down, the back's going up and down, but the bit in the middle isn't going up and down very much at all. Yeah. So you simply go and land in the middle, yeah. whereas a conventional aeroplane would have to cope with a back end that's going, going up and down. The other thing for the Harrier, I'll throw this one in, it's better to stop and then land than to land and then stop. <laughs> um, but once you're on the deck, they then wanted you out of the way quickly. And Either they taxied you forwards, which meant they then had to turn you around, or another cunning plan that they devised was to back taxi. Okay. You put the nozzle slightly forward, uh, the deck is considered a FOD-free zone, so you back taxi, which is no big deal, except the centre of gravity of the aeroplane is just ahead of the main wheel, mm -hmm. and the front is a large, squidgy nose wheel. If you break when you're going forward, the nose wheel squidges, and that's an end to it. If you brake slightly aggressively when you're going backwards, there's nothing on the back, so the nose wheel comes up, mm. which is slightly alarming. What was even more alarming was that they would back taxi you to the edge of the ship, so the back end of the aeroplane is over the sea, 
Your main wheels, hopefully, are still on the deck. But when you're sitting in the cockpit, all you can see is this water rushing past. Oh. And when the marshal, and the marshals were brilliant, they were really, really good. And you had to have faith in them. And they deserved to have your faith. Of course. Um, if you put your brakes on a wee bit too aggressively and the nose reared up, that was really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But if you put your brakes on too slowly, you knew that you were going backwards and your main wheel wasn't a great distance from the edge of the deck. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, uh, that was my experience on Hermes. My next Harrier experience was as a squadron commander, where I had four squadron at Goodeslowe, flying the GR3. Back in Germany, great fun again. Field deployments, living in tents, flying off muddy fields, all the usual stuff that we'd done. Um, and I was really lucky that I had some absolutely first-class people on the squadron, mm -hmm. which generally made my life so much more pleasurable and that for me was the pinnacle of my career it was the best I was as a pilot I got lots of flying um, and it was a job that I really really enjoyed I'd have quite happily stayed there forever oh really yeah after the squadron commander tour the next Harrier related tour was as Station Commander at Larbrook is when we took the GR7s from Goodeslow were moved into Larbrook and the Pumas and the Chinooks came down. As a Station Commander you get to fly all of the aircraft types so I got a Puma course before going out there. Um, I got up to solo stroke captain status in the Puma, uh, not so in the Chinook because it's a two crew aeroplane so there was no need for me. I could fly right hand seat if I had a left hand seat qualified captain. If he wasn't left hand seat qualified then I'd fly in the left hand seat. But as station commander I got to fly the Puma and the Chinook. Brilliant, brilliant. Not bad. Oh absolutely <laughs> marvellous. I mean the Chinook is a big helicopter. It's huge. But it is fantastically agile and you're not really aware uh, that it's as big as it is. So it doesn't feel like a brick when you're flying? No, not at no. all. It is a super uh, helicopter to fly. And the Puma, equally smaller, but great fun to fly. Mm -hmm. While I was at Larbrook, we took the GR7 operational, putting it into Insulik in Turkey to fly what was known as Operation Northern Watch. And it was basically monitoring Northern Iraq down to the 36th parallel. Um, Southern Watch, I think it went up to the 32nd parallel, so there was a band in the middle over Baghdad where Saddam was free to do whatever he wanted to do. One of the big differences between us and the Americans is an American wing commander, and the wing commander in the American terminology is basically the same as our station commander. Right. So he's a full colonel, but he's known as the wing commander. He would fly the missions that his wing was going to fly. We tended not to do that as station commander, and I wasn't very comfortable with that. Mm. So I went to Inslick and flew the GR7 on a Northern Watch mission so that I knew what stresses and pressures the folk that were doing it were, were going through. Uh, and that was very, very interesting. We, Inslick was about mid-Turkey, I guess. You'd take off, you'd fly east through Turkey, refuel, then head south into Iraq, <coughs> do the mission, 
and then fly back to insulate. What was interesting was watching particularly some of the young pilots, and I'm talking people in their early 20s, mm. going off on these missions. And when you're getting changed and ready to go, the atmosphere changes completely. Uh, the banter disappears, generally, uh, and you can see that the stress levels, the concentration is there. And I felt it was important that I could see that for first hand, which is why I went and did that sortie. The other thing was we had sent some Harriers out to Nellis, not for a red flag, but to do support an army tank battle at the National Training Center, which I think is Fort Irwin, in California, just against the Nevada border. Right. And I wanted to go and see what this was like from the ground. So got into a vehicle at I don't know, midnight or something in Las Vegas, drove through the night, got to Fort Irwin, I think, um, met the colonel who was running the show, got into his Humvee, and we drove off at high speed into the desert. Uh, inky poo black, I couldn't see anything. The driver had NVGs on. The colonel had done this a zillion times, so he was totally uninterested in the whole event. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, what is going on? So I mentioned this to him and he said, oh, use my NVGs. So he lent me his NVGs, which I put on. And it was amazing because all of a sudden out of the inky poo black, there were tanks everywhere. Really? We got up onto this ridge overlooking where the battle was going to happen. And he lifted the bonnet of this Humvee and put an MRE on the engine block to warm up. MRE, meals ready to eat. It was like sort of hot baby food, right. but it was an experience. And I watched the air attacks against this tank battle on the ground. And it, I mean, we're talking, uh, now we're talking 30 years ago. And for then it was pretty high tech. The tanks could electronically shoot each other. And if a, the computer decided it was a valid kill, it would shut down the engine of the tank that was dead and put one of those um, orange rotating beacons on, mm. on the back of the tank. So everybody said, okay, that's a dead tank. The aeroplanes had a similar <coughs> way of killing tanks. Um, they had smoky sams, they called them, and they were little rockets that fired up polystyrene projectiles, but a whole load of smoke, so it was really quite realistic, and there was smoke everywhere all over the place. Fortunately, although the aeroplanes could stop the engine of the tank, the air-to-air -air people didn't have the option to stop the engine of the aeroplane, which was just as well. Uh, that was a good experience, and I'll finish the Harrier bit by saying what a sad thing it was that the Harrier was retired oh, prematurely, absolutely. because by the time they got to the GR9, which had uh, weapon systems integration, GR9A, um, it was at a peak of its abilities, and to retire it the way they did, frankly, was shameful. And if you look at the AMARC website, that's the Davis Monthan yeah. Boneyard, it brings tears to my eyes yeah, to see the fuselages sitting there with four squadron markings on the nose, the squadron I had. It's right there. <laughs> uh, and the Marines must have got an absolute bargain, because I assume that they've just taken them into spare, spare parts. Of course, yeah. But uh, what a crying shame. Well, you still had a great time on the Harrier, but uh, while we wrap up this part, how many hours did you get on the Harrier altogether with all the marks you flew? Harrier, I got about two and a half thousand. 